This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, if, uh, if, you've, if you've been here, yep, we're still having that little issue. Uh, if you've been here at all, you know that we are in the middle, or we've just begun, a study in the book of Acts. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I'm going to encourage you to uh, maybe take one of those blue hardcover Bibles uh, that are there uh, in a chair pocket in front of you. Um, you know, as as we've begun this study, we've it's kind of overwhelming, right? There are so many things that could be talked about and so many feelings that get stirred up even as we approach the book of Acts, if, if you're a believer, if you've been around the Bible and church at all. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, this is actually going to be maybe more interesting to you than the rest of us because what's so fascinating about the book of Acts is that it's here at all. We said at the beginning that this is a, a, a book, a, a, a record written by, the, by, by Luke he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and now this is the companion piece. And what's so striking about this, in fact, is why we called uh, the series Unstoppable. is because the Gospel of Luke kind of tracks right up until the fact that Jesus himself is crucified and buried. But then he rises from the dead. And he, he spends 40 days with his followers teaching them, and then he ascends. And the book of Acts comes in. And it's kind of a surprise. You see, the theme of the book of Acts is that Jesus' work continues. It's unstoppable. Not even death could stop it. And the entire book is filled with this theme over and over and over again, that there's an obstacle, there's a danger, there's a, there's a, a problem, and the gospel just keeps penetrating through and reaching people. Last week we said that uh, if you want to see what the, the entire outline of the book, it's found in one of the very first verses in the book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It goes like this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's it. That's really the, the outline of the whole book. The rest of the, this whole book is going to kind of follow the, the gospel as it penetrates Jerusalem and then it moves geographically and socially, ethnically, culturally, branching out from there to reach the ends of the earth. And we ended last week by acknowledging we were their ends of the earth. And so now it kind of it's, it's easy for those of us that called Crossroads home to think that we're the Jerusalem. You know, we're at the center. Just really refreshing to remember we were the ends of the earth for them. But now we start where we are and we move out. Now, I can't really talk about Acts 1-8 without just inserting some personal stories because Acts 1-8 is, is, is a verse that has special meaning for me. Uh, you see, back when I was in seminary, when I went to Dallas Seminary, I got to sit under Dr. Howard Hendricks. He taught Bible study methods and, and biblical hermeneutics and interpretation. And so when he taught this course on dynamic Bible study, uh, this was one of the verses. This was It might have been the very first assignment that we had. Uh, and consequently, as a, as a professor myself, I still issued this same verse as a challenge. You see, there's a, there's a process attached to studying the Bible. I want to kind of take away some of the mystery. There are some steps that everyone who wants to be a good student of the Bible should follow. And it was Dr. Hendricks that taught us that there are a couple of terms that kind of guide us. So the first one he would mention is observation. I can't tell you how many times, you've, if you've been around Christian people, church people, and they sit in a circle and they read a verse, and then the next question is, so what does that mean to you? Why does that matter? You know, they go right to some application, and they skip something very important. They skip the very first step, which is, first of all, what does it actually say? And that's this act of observation. Now, connected to observation, there are some ABCs, and you can write them in your notes page if you're following along, if you're a note taker. If you're not, that's fine. But the ABCs under observation, you could talk about author for the A. You know, who wrote this? And the B, background. 
Where were they when they wrote it? What, what, what was it that caused them to write it? What's the context? That would be the C. And so we begin to ask, her. first of all, who wrote this? Who's he writing to? What, what is it that prompted the writing? And what is it that he is trying to say to these people? All under this idea of observation. Well, the steps went on. The next one was interpretation. Okay, now that we know what it says, and we actually know what it says, what does it mean? Um, let, me, let me back up for a second. I, I, I wasn't going to take the time to do this, but I, I think it might be helpful. Under observation. Uh, the assignment that I received from Dr. Hendricks, and that every one of us did, um, was simple this. He would give us this verse, Acts 1.8, and he would say, well, I'm not going to, I can't really do it. An invitation of him, but kind of this little guy here. For the next class, I want you to bring 25 observations from Acts 1-8. 25 observations from that one verse. And if you're like me, you sit there going, there aren't even that many words in that verse. Like 25 observations. Man. And I gotta tell you, for for days you're 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 laboring over this verse. Um and you come up with three or four, five. You make up a few, six or seven. Twenty-five, is he crazy? And I remember I, I had about 15. And I went to class, kind of. And he goes, all right, let's share some of your observations. And my first thought was, yes, because now I can add theirs to mine and I'll have 25. Woo and then people started making observations. Now, some of them were as lame as mine. Often, someone saw something I didn't think about. And when we were all done, Dr. Hendricks would ask a couple more questions. And by the end of that class, he'd say, for next hour, I want you to bring back 25 more observations from Acts 1.8. We did that for four classes, folks. Four times we collected another 25. It might have even been more than that, now that I think about it. How, where in the world do you get all these observations from one verse? And yet, once you learn to start paying attention as you read the Bible, once you start learning to ask questions, you'd be surprised at what you learn. When we're all done, Dr. Hendricks, off the top of his head, went through the book. I mean, went through the verse. But. It's the first word in the verse. But. The word of Contrast. Contrasting to what? What he had said just before. Times and seasons, whatever. And you. Who was the you? These same. And he would unpack who these disciples were and what they had been through. But you will. Notice that he doesn't say you may, you might, perhaps. That this is a, a, an assurance. You will receive. God is in the giving business. Power. And he just went through the verse. And as he making observations one word at a time. And before he was done, you had the sense that I might, I think I could preach for a year from Acts 1.8. I say all that to say, I would never want you to think that what we do as pastors is somehow mystical and, and, and just special thing that, that only we know how to do. It's just the opposite. If we do our job well, all of you could do this. And it starts with a simple, uh, a simple skill of learning to read the Bible and stop and say, wait, 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 why does he say that? What does that word mean? Why does he keep saying that word? Why is this important? What's he getting at? What's, and start asking questions. You'd be amazed at what we can learn. That's observation. Interpretation, then, is this idea of, okay, so now that I know what it says, what does that mean? And we don't have time this morning to unpack that process. But the next step is just trying to figure out what it means. Then thirdly is the application. What is it that I'm supposed to do about this? We've already said in the book of Acts, sometimes we're going to see things described. This is the way that things happen. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to do them that way, but it's how it happened. Other times, however, in the book of Acts, there's going to be times when it's pretty clear. This is how God's people should respond. And so what is the application for me? And then the last step was correlation, this idea of before I go preaching, 
let me check the rest of the Bible. Uh, do I think this verse says something that isn't said anywhere else in the Bible? Or are there passages in the scripture that contradict what I think this one says? Then maybe I need to go back and do some more fact checking. Well, anyway, Acts 1.8, every time I read it, I flash back to Dallas in that classroom, class 104, and I still see Dr. Hendricks. And blowing my mind as he opened up the scriptures for us. Well, last time we, uh, as we started the book, we, we talked a little bit about what was going on at, at the, in the beginning. Uh, Jesus had, has been raised. He's teaching and interacting with his disciples. And then the part that we didn't cover, uh, verses 9 through 26, Jesus ascends into heaven and the, the, the disciples, the apostles, go back to Jerusalem. They go back into this upper room where they had been before. It's interesting that it says that they go back and they were accompanied by the women, which, again, that's a point that we're going to see over and over and over again. We see it from Luke throughout his gospel, that while in a culture where women were not treated as even second-class citizens, um, Jesus and his disciples invited and treated the women as co-workers, co-disciples. So they're up in this upper room and they're devoting themselves to constant prayer. They know he went, he rose, he ascended, and they're wondering, where is this comforter? What's, he said something's coming, and, and so they're in this constant prayer. And in the midst of that, Peter stands up, being the leader that he is, and he brings up this issue of the fact that, well, there were 12 of us, but one of us turned out to be a Judas, literally. Okay, I, I mean, yeah, I thought it was cute. Anyway, um, but I have a very low standard. Uh, and so he says, we need to replace him because when Jesus comes back, he's probably expecting 12 apostles. So they go through this process of choosing a new replacement for Judas. By the way, it's interesting that they choose him by casting lots. Aren't you glad that we don't choose our leaders exactly the way they did it in the New Testament or in the book of Acts? We don't want to just be casting lots, rolling a dice for who's going to lead your small group or whatever. But that brings chapter 1 to an end, and then we begin in chapter 2. And I'm going to invite you to read along with me the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Wow. This is the power encounter. If, you, if you're around church and Bible at all, this, this is where it all goes off the rails. Remember we said last time, some of you are, you are Pentecostals at heart and you just can't wait to get to one of these power encounters and bust it loose. Uh, some of you are the ones, you're like me, you try to clap when we sing. You actually try to clap. And then there's others of us who put our hands deep in our pockets and think, could we just, you know, have another verse? And this whole thing of the Spirit of God kind of, it's kind of, he's uncontrollable and it's hard to know what's going to happen. So here we are. This is where something is happening. I think it's imperative that we understand. What's happening in Acts 2 if we're going to understand the rest of the book? I'm not sure how much background you have. I'm not sure what preconceived ideas you have. But let's, uh, let's practice this ABCs of observation for just a minute, shall we? So when God established the nation of Israel, he took a group of slaves, people that have spent their entire lives working from sunup to sundown, just hoping to get home and survive the day. They weren't saving for retirement. They weren't owning anything. They were just basically working and trying to feed their families. They were slaves. He took them out of Egypt and he says, now I'm going to make you into a nation, a people with an identity. And, and much of the Old Testament law is God's attempt to begin to teach Israel what it means to be a, a unique, distinct people with their own history and their own identity. And that comes through his giving them the law. Kind of tucked into the law, 
were some some instructions about observing special feasts. There were at least seven major feasts in the in the calendar of Israel. Let's just go over a couple of them. Actually, the the first four, because that's going to bring us to this one that we're celebrating here at Pentecost. The first one was called Passover. Passover was this celebration when they remembered their deliverance from Egypt. And you remember that story and the the death angel moved across. They put blood across the doors and he would skip over those houses of Israelites. And the firstborn of every Egyptian family uh, was killed. They died. And and this idea that, that through that death, eventually God achieved their deliverance. The beginning of the life of Israel. It's kind of like their 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 celebration, their inaugural celebration, Passover. In First Corinthians five, Paul says that Jesus is our Passover. He makes it clear that the Passover was kind of pointing toward the day when a lamb would be killed, his blood would be shed, and he would be the one that would bring deliverance to all of us. Kind of a cool foreshadowing there. The second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a a seven-day feast. And what they were to do was to make sure in that seven days that every bit of yeast in their home was was gotten rid of. In a sense, kind of like a house cleaning. And you say, yeast, what's the big idea for yeast? Well, again, remember, Jesus is using these, or or God is using these uh, feasts to teach Israel. And yeast was this kind of a, a type or a metaphor for sin. And so what he's saying is, I want you to search through your lives, and, and just like you got rid of all the leaven in your home for that period, that's what I expect my people to do about with sin in their lives, to search it out and to, to remove it, to remove themselves from these sinful practices and behaviors. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul references the, this, this idea of unleavened bread, and he says, therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In a sense, what he's saying is, once you have been delivered, the expectation is that we will begin to rid ourselves of these things that are sinful and separate ourselves for God. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is sinless, which means all of us, can do some work in removing those things and cleaning up that aspect of our relationship with him. That's unleavened bread. The third festival that he talked about was the festival of first fruits. Uh, Basically, this was all, remember, Israel, it was an agrarian society. Now we just go buy boxes of cereal, okay? And we have no clue where this stuff comes from for the most part. But they were actually planting growing, harvesting, and processing these things. And that was the source of their food and their income. First fruits was the celebration. Basically, as soon as the first parts of the crop were ripe and ready to be harvested, some of it would be harvested by the priests. They would take it in. They would thresh it. They would grind it into flour. They would make it into bread. They would bake that bread. And then symbolically, two of those loaves were offered as an offering to God. And it was their way of saying, we know where this comes from. Thank you. Thank you, God. These two loaves are really just the beginning of what's to come. There's much more to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul references the book, I mean, the the festival of first fruits. And he says, But Christ, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's interesting that God told Israel to celebrate first fruits, and then we are told that Jesus was a sort of first fruits. He was raised to newness of life, and we have that coming as well. His resurrection and ascension was just the beginning of a huge harvest. And then the fourth festival that they would celebrate would be Pentecost. Now, Pentecost really just means 50. Okay, like a pentagon or something like that. It just means 50. Uh, basically, they were instructed you know, seven Sabbaths after that first harvest. So the harvesting season was about seven weeks long. 
And at the end of that first harvesting, they were to, again, sort of have a party. It was their fall festival. It was their uh, special harvest day celebration. So seven weeks, and so sometimes it's called Pentecost. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Weeks or a week of weeks, seven weeks. There was this time when um, they were to celebrate all of the bounty, all of the goodness, kind of like our Thanksgiving potluck. We are just going to celebrate that God has been generous in almost every way imaginable. That's what Pentecost was supposed to be. It's kind of interesting that tucked into all of these laws about harvesting, which Pentecost would celebrate, were also rules, if, and this, this is all kind of found in, if, if you want to go look it up, in Leviticus 23 and some other passages. But there are some laws about when they harvest, they weren't supposed to harvest everything. They were to leave the edges and the corners unharvested for gleaners. God was telling them, look, when you harvest, don't harvest everything. Leave a little out there for those who don't have anything, for those who are aliens and strangers, for those who don't have a place. Leave something for them. And I find that just amazing, that Pentecost was about not harvesting everything so that others from outside could come in and enjoy a festival, enjoy uh, the provision of God as well. That's what's going to happen at Pentecost. There's one other little thing about this, and that is that uh, as the years went on, the Jews came to see Pentecost as a time to celebrate the giving of the law. Remember when God delivered Israel from Egypt, and they wandered through the wilderness, and then they, they came to Mount Sinai, and uh, Moses told them, hey, everybody, go get a bath, get all cleaned up, put on your best duds, we're going out in the wilderness. They walked to the mountain, he says, stay here. He goes up, God speaks to him and gives him the Ten Commandments and the law. A seminal point in the life of Israel. And so at Pentecost, they sort of remembered the giving of the law. Whether it would be our Independence Day or whatever that is. It was, it was a time of partying. School was out. You had the day off from work. Everybody was planning to eat and drink and celebrate with family and friends. That was Pentecost. Now, there's an interesting verse in the book of Hebrews that relates to this. You see, the, the disciples, the apostles came to understand that everything that God had been instructing through the Old Testament was leading up to this apex, this, this arrival, the death and resurrection of Christ. So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.1 says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. You see, all these laws and festivals and those things, they were all supposed to foreshadow something bigger. In fact, everyone, even those Israelites who were celebrating knew, hey, this is great, but this is just foreshadowing something even bigger. If you were to ask them what that is, they would say, Someday the Messiah is coming. Someday he will redeem Israel. Someday he will throw off our oppressors. And he will elevate us back to this position of being God's chosen people. Someday that's going to happen. And that hope was woven into almost every aspect of every one of these festivals. You see, these festivals sort of foreshadow the timeline of our salvation. Jesus as, a, as the Lamb of God who was sacrificed. And now having put your faith in Jesus, he calls us to live a life that is separated from sin, to put away those things that are natural and evil and adopt what is good. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know that one day we have a future in heaven. It's secure. And now here we are at Pentecost. One day, one day there will be power available to God's people. And in that, in that moment of celebration of plenty, there will be enough for people from other nations and other countries and every corner of the earth to come and to benefit 
with us at the same time. And there's also this really strong contrast between the giving of the law and now the coming of the Spirit. And, and, and we don't have time this morning, but tell you what, if you look at Exodus 19, and if you read the story about when God gave Moses the law, what happens on the mountain? Smoke descends. There's fire on the mountain. There's a thundering loud noise. And what happens at Pentecost? There is a thundering loud noise. And there's fire that's distributed onto each of them. There's this really neat contrast. You see, there is something that the law couldn't do that the Spirit of God can and will do. And also you just need to know that most Israelites would know that the prophets, their prophets, their writers talked about this day, someday, when the Spirit of God would come, when the Messiah would come with his power in Joel 2. And, and Peter, when he preaches, we're going to look at that in the next week or two. When Peter preaches, he mentions Joel. Joel says, um, he quotes God in Joel 2. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all, all people. Isaiah 44, he says, I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, on your offspring. In Ezekiel 36 and 39, over and over again, there's all these passages about how he's going to pour out his spirit on his people. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So why is this all important? Because honestly, just reviewing all this stuff, I don't get seminary credit. So you're hoping there's a reason. And I think there is. I think it's important for us to realize that this thing that we're going to look at in just a minute, Pentecost, didn't happen in a vacuum. There, it wasn't just some random attention getting like, like God thought, hmm, well, you know, it's time that I shake things up. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Should I, should I bring Elvis back from the dead? No, I don't, maybe. A, how about a loud wind? Yeah, and fire, that'd be cool. And he just does it out of clear blue. It, it's not random. He has been foreshadowing this for centuries. And what's more, every Jew kind of sort of knew that something like this was supposed to come. There was that gnawing sense that something big is coming. Every festival, every event had that kind of sense of, I wonder if this is the one. It's also important to remember that because it was so connected to everything that they had heard through the past, Pentecost, Acts 2, had a special purpose. It was here for a reason. Because of that, it's not a repeatable event. It's not like it's something that's supposed to happen all the time. It actually had a singular purpose, and we're going to talk about that as we go on. It wasn't necessarily intended to be the pattern for how church should look after it was born. I don't know about you, but I'm actually kind of glad I don't look like I did when I was born. I mean, I was a handsome baby. Obviously, you assume that. But, but when somebody is 26 and they look just like they did when they were born, something's wrong. The church isn't supposed to look like it did when it was born. But its birth was unique. And what's interesting is, if I look at baby pictures of you, which is always a lot of fun, if I look at baby pictures of you, and then I look at you, I probably will see a resemblance, be it ever so slight. But you don't look the same. The church is not the same. Okay, so what are we supposed to learn from this? How about we just talk about one thing, and that's the big elephant in the room. And it's this. Are we supposed to be experiencing this kind of Acts 2 type power today? Let's go back and read it again. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place. I think that includes the disciples. It included the women. It could have included the 120. And suddenly there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. 
I want you to notice, it wasn't a violent wind. It was just the sound of a violent wind. Now, I haven't been through hurricanes like, like we've experienced recently, but I've been through a few hurricanes having lived in Florida. And I was in a small gymnasium once when a hurricane was going through. The entire building kind of vibrated and shook. There was this low, almost unidentifiable sound. It's just like, and you were looking for loose pieces. Nothing was really shaking, or but you could just feel it moving everything. And yet, the air inside the building was perfectly still. They heard a sound that was like a violent rushing wind. I wish we could talk about the actual words, this idea that it really has, it's related to this idea of breathing. And you kind of get the sense of intimacy where God's just going, So they hear this sound. Uh, why? Why a loud sound? I want you to remember that this is contrasting in their minds to the giving of the law. As this unfolds, they start going, wait a minute, wait a minute. This reminds me of the other time when God stuck his head into our lives. Is this what's happening? He's doing it again. The answer is yes. This loud wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. It's kind of hard to figure this out. Seemed to be tongues of fire. They clearly were not fire. I think the author, I think Luke would have said, big tongues of fire came down and set their hair on fire. I mean, I think he would identify. But what it was, something about it, it looked like fire. This glow, this, this, this light. Now, when Moses went up on the mountain, who went with him? Nobody. Just him, that God was very specific. Everybody else, stay down or you die. But this time, this fire is distributed to everyone there. Hmm, that's very different from the first time God stuck his head into our, into our lives. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We're going to talk a little bit more about tongues next time. It's clear in this passage that they were known languages. Others were hearing them speak in languages that they recognized from home. These apostles, disciples, had never learned the language. They simply suddenly had the supernatural ability to speak someone else's language. And we'll see that that too is connected to what God did in the past. Believe it or not, when God was angry with Israel, and if you know anything about the Old Testament, it happened a lot. We're so different from them. When he was angry and he was going to warn them, he would often say, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you don't obey me, another nation's going to come in and they're going to make sure you obey them. You think what I put on your shoulders is heavy. You wait till you feel what these guys are going to bring. And mixed into that warning, he would say, you're going to, and, and, and you got to understand. So in that context, this was like a, like a, a, a punishment. You are going to hear foreign languages. Now, he's not talking about hearing voices in the night. What he's saying is, you're going to be overthrown, and people are going to be talking languages that you don't understand. Foreigners talking around you, that's going to be a bad day. It was a day in our country when it wasn't funny to joke about everybody around you speaking German. Because the worry was that they were going to beat us and infiltrate and take over. So for Israel, the threat of hearing foreign languages in their midst, that was kind of a, a warning sign. And Paul later, and we're not going to go there, but Paul, when he's describing tongues in 1 Corinthians, he says that tongues is actually a sign for unbelievers. I think unbelieving Jews. They would hear voices. And what this, what this said was God saying, hey, remember I told you that if you keep rejecting, I'm going to bring in a different group. Those are the languages you hear. There are so many connections, you guys. It's just profound. But here's the point. Are we supposed to be 
experiencing this kind of Acts 2, this Pentecostal power today. I'm going to just say it depends on what part of that Acts 2 story you want to talk about. In one sense, no. Because the Spirit cannot make a first-time appearance a second time. You only get to make a first impression once. And he was coming in to inaugurate a different relationship to God through Jesus. In that sense, what happened here, this connection with not the law, but now the spirit, and all those things that would make that contrast, it can only happen once. The fire, the wind, it draws attention to God's former actions among Israel. The signs, the tongues were signs to these unbelieving Jews that God was shifting his attention. So in one sense, no. But there is another sense which I think we have to examine. And that is this. that You see, the spirit that indwelt them and filled them that day, he indwells and fills us if you're a believer in Jesus. That same spirit there is in you and me if you've put your faith in Christ. Now, how do we explain the difference between what they experienced and what we experience? I'm looking. Not a single tongue of fire. I don't want to see your tongues. But not. Wow. It's, it doesn't look quite as exciting as Acts 2. Are you sure that same spirit is here and in you as there? What could explain the difference? I'm going to suggest that because of all of that back history, all of those festivals, all of that training, all of that foreshadowing leading up to that day, Jesus had been crucified. The whole town knew it. He was resurrected. He walked among them for 40 days. Then he ascended and he goes, wait there until I send the comforter. Can you imagine the anticipation? They were Pentecostal ready. They were Pentecostal ready. Mm. Gosh, you guys are so white. Anyway, um, <clears throat> no, but I mean, uh, me too. I know, but you know what? What I've learned is that um, hmm, there's something going on. They were Pentecostal ready. They were ready for something to happen. In fact, if you look at what was going on in Acts one, it says that all the believers were unified. They were all unified. They were all on the same page. They were together physically. They were together emotionally. They were together spiritually. They were together. They were praying. This isn't a program like a Wednesday night prayer meeting. They were praying every chance they got about anything that came up. Prayer is this instinctive response of those who know Jesus. Somebody comes in and says, Hey, such and such happened. It was great. Oh, that's great. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Somebody comes in and says, hey, I just heard that so-and-so's car broke down. And they don't like, hey, whoa, whoa, let's pray. You see, it is the instinctive response. God, watch over them. God, protect them. God, it's this conversation that occurs. They were praying. What we're going to find out starting next week is that they weren't just unified in praying. They were preaching the gospel. They were actually talking to people about who Jesus was and what he did and what they need to do. They were persuading people. And they were thinking about winning souls. They were Pentecostal ready. That might explain the difference in reaction. They knew that there was only one reason they were there. And it was because Jesus was alive. In Galatians 2.20 we read this. And you can hear that this is the kind of thing that the believers in Acts 2 would have said. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. We're not Pentecostal ready. Unless we can say, I'm only here for one reason. So that Christ can live through me. 
in Romans 8. As Paul's trying to uh, explain this connection with Christ, he says, And so he condemned sin, that's Jesus, in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, remember, the first appearance, might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, when we ask, should we be experiencing that kind of power today? I would say, I think probably so. Oh, not in the same way. But the same spirit that was there is here. How do you explain the fact that we don't? We're not living Pentecostal ready. Can I get an amen? <laughs> We're not living Pentecostal ready. We're not living with this awareness that I'm only here for one reason. That we are in this together. That everything that happens we talk to God about. And by the way, who did you talk to in the last hour about Jesus? Because for all I know, he's coming back tonight. See, what we tend to do is we tend to do the best we can as Christians, as members of Crossroads. We just do the best we can. So we don't have all that wind and fire stuff, so we just do the best we can. You understand, Mike, I'm doing the best I can. I try not to lose my temper at work. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to be a good parent to my kids. I'm just doing the best I can. But hey, nobody's perfect. We all have our weaknesses. I don't think that's what those Pentecostal ready believers in Acts 2 were saying. You see, I'm not sure Jesus is wanting your best, my best. I don't think that's what he's interested in. I think what he wants is his best. And only he can give his best. So they were ready. And what did them being ready do? Nothing. Except that they were ready when he moved. When he sent power. When his spirit came and filled them. And what's interesting is the people in Jerusalem were ready. I mean, isn't it interesting that this happens at Pentecost when all these Jews from around the world are all in one place. Perfect timing. And when they heard the wind and the noise, they all came like, what's going on? What's going on? What's happened? Connected to Pentecost. And then when Peter stands up and preach, preaches, they just go, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. The people had been prepared. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about giving the gospel to folks. It's important for us to know that we will only be effective in sharing the gospel when we share it with people who are ready to hear it. God prepares people, gets them ready to hear and listen to the gospel. So only give the gospel to people who are ready. How do you know if they're ready? You don't. So you give it to everybody. But that readiness will explain why some respond and some don't. The believers were ready. They were unified. They were praying. They were living for Christ. They were putting off the old self. They were putting on the new. I think this is what a Pentecostal church is supposed to look like. What do we have? We don't have wind. We don't have fire. But we've got the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I find it hard to believe that if we really would live that in the power of Jesus, that it wouldn't be every bit as effective as wind and fire. You start going to work, you start interacting with your co-workers in a different way. You're encouraging, you're pleasant, you're patient, you're helpful. You don't complain. Instead, you seek out their best. And pretty soon they're going to go, whoa, what happened? No wind, no fire, just kindness. Powered by the Spirit. So the problem is, I, I think every church is supposed to be a Pentecostal church. Amen? Amen. I think we're supposed to be a Pentecostal church. I don't care whether your hands go up or stay in your pocket. We're supposed to be a Pentecostal church. We're supposed to be a church that is unified and that is praying and that is giving their lives to, for Christ. Is putting away the junk and trying to put on the new nature and that they are looking to witness to anybody who will stand still 
because Jesus could come back tomorrow. That's a Pentecostal church. All that wind and fire and tongues, that happened once. That was a good start. But we've got something every bit as powerful. So you do know how to, how to, you do know how to make a, a spirit-filled church, right? You fill it with spirit-filled Christians. It's just that simple. So if you're like me and you say, yeah, the only problem with this whole message is like all those things are not really working for us right now. I had, I, you kidding? I was going to preach this message and I'm going to stand up here and act. You know what? Yeah, you know what? I, I, those things are not happening in me. Are they not working for me? Or is it that they're not present in me? So this week I was thinking about this and I was all convicted thinking, man, I, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to lead. I'm, I'm supposed to be an example. I'm supposed to, and I'm not doing it. And, I, and at first I kind of felt kind of pushed down until I heard what God was saying here. What she said is, um, Mike, it's still all available to you. If it's not working, it's not working because it's not in you, Mike. But if you would let it in you, it works. It works. So let me ask you this. If you could experience Acts 2 type power. And if something changed in your life so that you couldn't help but pray about things. You couldn't help but encourage and be united with other believers. You were often putting off the old self and putting on the new. If you were finding yourself with opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel and you were just taking it boldly. Hey, by the way, who do you think Jesus is? Do you have a minute? Can we talk about this? Because this has been life-changing for me. What do you think is going to happen after we die? And start the conversation. If that's what you wish your spiritual life was like, I think what we learned from Acts 2 is it's right here. It's right here available to us. We just have to be Pentecostal ready. So are you ready? Let's pray. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I would hate for you to miss the whole point. Jesus died for you. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He has forgiven your sin. And he wants to give you eternal life as a gift. But he will not do it against your will. You must receive him. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you do that now? Jesus, I believe you died for me and I'm trusting you as my Savior. If you're a believer here this morning, the Spirit of God is in us and he's in this church and among us. He wants to bring that same kind of powerful effectiveness, but he will not do it against your will. And so he has given us this privilege of being Pentecostal ready. We can't tell him what to do or when to do it, but we can be ready for whenever he does. The only question is, are you and I living like we're ready? So that at any moment, God, by his power, would bust out and save thousands. It only happens when we're living in unity, when we're living for Christ, when we're putting aside the flesh and seeking to put on the spirit, when we are actively, intentionally pursuing the lost with an intention of bringing them to faith. That's what Pentecostal churches do. And if we will do that, then the Spirit is free to come and work in whatever shocking, exciting way He wants. And if you're a believer, you're just dying for that experience. Dying for Him to show up and do what He promised. Father God, You've redeemed us through the Lord Jesus. Jesus, You gave Yourself for us. You sent the Spirit just as You promised and he is here today in the hearts and spirits of every believer. And he is aching to move through us. And so would you 
cleanse us? Would you forgive us? Would you set us free from whatever our little hang-up is and help us to begin living like what we believe is actually true and that you are the most important thing and the gospel changes people's eternal destiny and we want to live like that's true. Would you set us free and enable us to be a Pentecostal church? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to take our morning offering right now. If you've got that Connect card, you want to dig that out. And uh, again, if you're a guest, we'd love to know who you are. We'd love to know your name and how you found out about us. Um, for those of you who've been giving so faithfully, thank you for that. You can see that there's a, there's a big gap between what we thought we were going to raise by now and what we've raised. Um, you need to know that all the bills are paid. But we're going to ask you to pray that God would fill that gap so that the ministries that we're planning and continue. We know he's able. I'm going to ask you to join me in asking God to flood to flood this church with the ability not just to give but to minister in his name. Let's pray. Jesus, everything we have comes from you. You are the source. You give us the health, you give us the bodies, you give us the jobs, you give us the means by which we can support our families. All these things are from you, and we know it. And it is such a privilege to test our faith by giving a portion of it back to you. You don't need our money. And because of that, Crossroads doesn't need our money. But it is this way of us showing our faith in you. And putting our money where our mouth is when we say this is important to the kingdom of God. I know there are some who would want to give and cannot. and They give what they can. I thank you so much for those who have been generous. And I thank you for those who have just begun giving just a little bit. And they're a little afraid. I pray that you would bless. But God, I ask that you would open the floodgates of heaven. That you would allow your people to fund your ministry in a way that enables people to give you praise. So as we give these gifts, I ask that you would bless them, multiply them, and bless those who give them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.